Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Did he call? No, he didn't call. Because I was like, I, I was in the men's room, and remember, I told you to listen and pick up my phone if it rings. Yes, I remember that conversation, which took place three minutes ago, Colin. Do you think there might be something wrong with the phone? The ringer? Or maybe the receiver is slightly off the hook? No, Colin, there's nothing wrong with the phone. President Obama has not called you today. He probably won't be calling you today. He's a busy guy. Could you play it for me one more time? <sighs> when he says my name! That would make... One, two... Seven times this morning. Please. Okay. For the eighth time. Colin, thanks for having me. Are you happy now? Let me ask you something. Would it be weird if I made that my ringtone? No, it wouldn't be weird. It would be humiliating and stupid. Have you forgotten what you tell us all the time? We're a daily show. Get one done and move on to the next. We never dwell on the last show we did. I know. It's just that... I miss him so much. Is someone you love suffering from post-POTUS depression? Missing the president can alter the quality of a person's life. But now there's help. Ask your doctor or pharmacist if Barexa is right for you. Barexa targets its reuptake chemicals directly at those presidential memories and makes them vanish like a dream. Side effects include aggression, anxiety, swollen tongue, Mitch McConnell turtle face, and nightmares of pig castration. Finally, there's a place you can go where the president never called you. Barexa. Hey, Kyone. Remember how upset I was yesterday? I can't even remember what that was about. Colin, thanks for having me. Today on the show, once we get the host stabilized, we'll review the other things that happened yesterday. You know, like the actual elections. And now we told him today's guests are Paul McCartney and Pope Francis. Don't shatter that illusion. Colin McEnroe. Actually, we have great guests for you today. They are not, however, Paul McCartney and Pope Francis. Although I'm sure now that things are kind of rolling in that direction, uh, things like that will also begin to happen. Uh, But we're very excited about who is on the show today. And it was obviously a very interesting day and night yesterday here in Connecticut and at the nation at large. Uh, Maybe... In, in some ways, almost more surprising and difficult to predict here in Connecticut than the whole big, fat national trend. We're going to look at both things. Uh, later in the show today, we'll be talking to George Zornick, the Washington editor at The Nation, and Margaret Carlson, uh, a journalist and national political columnist for Bloomberg News, uh, about some of those national trends. We're also going to talk to Matt Ritter, a Connecticut State representative in the 1st Assembly District of Hartford, where we had all those uh, problems. Uh, problems at the polls that made us into a national story in a way that we did not want to be. Um, Also, this will sort of begin, or maybe it began on the wheelhouse this morning, a conversation we want to have about potential reform of the registrar system here in Connecticut. There's something wrong, right? I mean, every four years, we have problems at the polls. Uh, They have to go to court to extend the voting times, and we are national laughingstocks. So that's not good. Uh, And not only that, but the votes aren't all counted now. (laughs) Why aren't the votes counted? Why don't we know... Uh, all the vote totals here. It's, you know, afternoon uh, on the next day. So what, what's up with that? 
Anyway, so we'll be talking about that, and I know at least one registrar will be calling in uh, during that conversation. We're going to begin, though, by kind of recapping what happened uh, here in the state, especially in the gubernatorial election, but just generally speaking, what happened with somebody who knows a lot about how to run campaigns in Connecticut. He's Lowell Weicker. He was a U.S. congressman, a U.S. senator, and the first independent governor of Connecticut since the Civil War. He's the co-author with Barry Sussman of Maverick, A Life in Politics. Uh, He's been watching this election very carefully. Uh, So, Governor Weicker, welcome. Welcome back to our airwaves. And let me see if we can get him. Uh, Governor Weicker, uh, welcome back to our airwaves. See, I didn't have this problem with President Obama. All right, I'm going to put on hold for a second. We might actually have a little problem with that. Uh, and I will tell you uh, more about what it is uh, that we're doing here. So, um, specifically, uh, let me first of all set the stage for the conversation we're going to have with uh, Governor Weicker. Uh, obviously, uh, if you're just sort of catching up to all of this, last night, very late at night, um, Dan, Governor Dan Malloy did essentially declare victory. He gave uh, an acceptance speech. Um, Tom Foley then gave a sort of concession speech. And, um, and so we sort of pick up our story today. In fact, uh, Tom Foley was on with us on the wheelhouse this morning and, and once again effectively said that he, he thought he had lost but he wasn't really going to concede until all of the vote totals were in, that there were just enough missing votes that he, he wanted to satisfy himself. So he did not consider himself to have conceded this race. Uh, so now joining us is the aforementioned governor and senator, uh, Lowell Weicker. And, and so, uh, first of all, welcome back to our airwaves. Good to be back. And um, well, let's, let's begin by looking at that race. And let's, uh, I think we can stipulate anyway that it appears that Governor Dan Malloy has won re-election and, and that Tom Foley has lost. Um, first, first of all, do you find that surprising? Was that your expected result? Yes, it was mine. Uh, my wife, who's a Democrat, thought that was not going to be the case. But <laughs> quite frankly, uh, I thought he, Malloy was going to do better this time than he did last time. And he did. Uh, for a, Probably for a variety of reasons. I think the main one being that his opponent just doesn't know the state of Connecticut. Uh, You've had two candidates now from Greenwich, and each one has lost two elections, and their main uh, strength has been their money. Well, that's just not enough to win an election in Connecticut. If somebody from Greenwich were to run, I'd say run Peter Tessie, the first selectman, or... Scott France, the state senator. You need people that know the demographic that is the state of Connecticut. Well, yeah, when, we, when you say know the state of Connecticut, now these people, Tom Foley and Linda McMahon, they're not idiots, and they are able to get up to speed to a certain degree. They understand, for example, that it's a mistake probably to concede the urban vote entirely, or they would like to cut in to the huge margins that Dan Malloy can pull out of New Haven or Hartford or Bridgeport. So they work on that. They work on other things. But you seem to be talking about something a little bit more uh, almost – um, at, at the level of intuition, of, of understanding what kind of speech, what kind of message resonates with people? Well, there's no question about that. And it takes a time to learn that. Remember this. Before I ever became a United States senator or a governor, I'd been a first selectman for two terms. I'd been a state representative for three terms. and I've been a congressman for one term. And by the time I ran for the highest offices, I very well knew what Connecticut was all about. It's a blue-collar state. 
It's a state with a large number of minorities, both Latino and black. Obviously, we have the heavy percentage of women that doesn't seem to be working in the Republicans' favor right now. I mean, I just think the Republicans have to redraw their game plan in Connecticut. And that means you don't follow the national, the national game plan, which is religious right and, uh, and rural. Uh, you send the, the message from Connecticut that is Connecticut. And uh, I'm going to tell you, they'd better sit down and rewrite their whole game plan from scratch because we suffer as a state by virtue of having one-party government. You know, if I'm Tom Foley and I'm listening to you, Lowell Weicker, I might be thinking to myself, well, what did I do wrong? I mean, I, uh, I, I said that I, I, I wanted Connecticut to be more business friendly. I wanted us to have more jobs here that were lagging behind the rest of the comp- uh, country in job growth. Uh, I said that I, I thought uh, Governor Malloy was not being honest about the budget deficit, that it was worse than anything that he was portraying, that I wanted to do something about it by making government smaller. I said I wanted to do education reform, have money follow the child uh, and, and grade schools and, and be kind of uh, tough and demand excellence from the schools. So what's wrong with all that? If I'm Tom Foley, I may be saying, what's wrong with all that, Lil Weicker? That's That's a pretty good message. What do you mean I'm not connecting with voters with that? Well, I think... You got to have specifics. You got to know exactly what is going on, where it's going on, who it impacts on. Be specific. I mean, I watched all of Tom Foley's ads. Incidentally, I like Tom Foley. I think he's a fine gentleman. I do, mm-hmm. uh, and I've talked with him many times. But quite frankly, whoever his campaign advisors are, I don't think they come from Connecticut. I don't know, mm-hmm. but I don't think so, because when I hear him talk, it. The specifics are lacking. He's saying very nice, or he said very nice, nice things, but nothing that really, you know, brought me up short. Uh, in the meantime, Dan Malloy has a horrible, uh, well, I guess horrible is not the word, but he certainly has a tough record to run on. Mm-hmm. His agenda was pretty much shaped for him when he took over as governor of the state of Connecticut, and he inherited a huge deficit and all the problems that go with it. I can relate to that. It's the same scenario that awaited me when I became governor. But he took the necessary steps. He's now positioned Connecticut to move forward doing the nice things. So uh, I think, in part, a lot of people admired the guy for at least being honest and, and, and squaring away with him, whereas I think they got a lot of fluff out of, uh, out of uh, Tom Foley, and it just didn't connect with with their lives. And do you think part of the problem is, uh, uh, part of the problem seems to be attracting talent, attracting talent not simply uh, to run for governor, but to run for anything, to run for Congress, to run for the under ticket. Uh, I'm not saying they don't have any good candidates, but they don't seem to have very many. And I suppose if I were a smart Republican person with a, a good business background uh, and, and an attractive countenance uh, and, and a lot of energy, uh, and I was looking at all this, I might say to myself, well, they have this huge registration disadvantage. This state, you know, really does track blue pretty heavily. They don't seem very well organized. They seem that seems like they figure out their ticket at the convention based on who's willing to run for some of these offices as opposed to, you know, who would be really good. Why, why should 
I do that? I mean, with the registration disadvantage and everything else, you know, I, I've got a business to run. I've got a family. I've got kids. Why would I do this with a party that has just a track record of failure? So how do you overcome that? If you're running the Republican Party, how do you get that person to say, yeah, you know what? I'll take a crack. I'll, I'll, run, for, I'll run for something. Well, all right. I, I've got a very good answer for you because I've been through this scenario. You, you said it in, in your comments. The biggest numbers in the state of Connecticut belong to the independents. I knew that when I was a titular head of the party back when I was senator. And we changed the party rules to allow independents to participate in the Republican primaries. As soon as I'm out, the Republican Party repeals that, and we're right back to square one. I mean, there's a very simple move that could have enormous consequences in the sense of independence saying, hey, the Republicans are welcoming us and allowing us also to choose the candidates. And they had that opportunity, and then they blew it out the window. So there are many structural changes that could be made. As far as I'm concerned, if I were in Hartford with the Republican uh, committee there, I would say from now on we are not going to have any candidate that is capable of funding their own campaigns. Let's get money out of the equation. Let's get people that have ideas and come from a background that they can relate to the state of Connecticut. I mean, Greenwich, I love Greenwich. It was my whole life. That's where I lived. But I couldn't go ahead and live there politically in terms of my ideas. And I took to the road. And I understood Bridgeport from the inside. I understood Hartford and New Haven from the inside. I knew the state legislature from the inside. This is what the party has to do. It's it's not, it's not just a question of money, and that's what they think it is, and they don't give a damn about anybody's credentials. You know, I think your idea of opening up the primary process, uh, the Republican primary process to the independents, is the, the potential salvation of the party. And just for people who don't follow this stuff all that carefully, we're talking about a registration situation in which there's 800,000 and change uh, unaffiliated voters. There's 700,000 and change Dem- uh, Democratic voters, and there's 400,000 and change Republican voters. So if, if in, so if in fact you are the Re- Republican nominee, you really have to get a lot of unaffiliated voters to vote for you in the general election in order to win. But now, Governor Weicker, one of the things that people say back, particularly conservative Republicans say, well, if we do that, you know, um, the independents are going to pick a different kind of person. Like maybe they'd pick, maybe they would have picked John McKinney the last time around. And I don't like John McKinney because I think he's too soft. I think he's not a real Republican. I think he's not a red meat Republican. And he cooperated with Malloy too much on the gun bill. And I don't want that. So I don't want a bunch of people who aren't real Republicans picking my Republican nominee. I want to be able to pick a real Republican. I'm, I'm role playing here. But what would be your answer to me in, in that situation? Yeah, I hear, I hear you. I've- and I've heard, that, I've heard that talk. But let me say this, which I'm going to jog people's memory. When I had the Republican Party pass that rule that allowed independents to vote, which was turned over by Republicans as soon as I was defeated, at the time that I proposed that, the Democrats, the Democrats took the Republican Party to court to try to repeal that party rule. And it went all the way to the Supreme Court, and it was the Supreme Court that upheld that idea that independents could vote in a Republican primary. So this isn't just a matter of conservative Republicans. 
thinking that anybody else is a Republican name only. The Democrats don't like it either. None of the entrenched parties like it, but it's the wave of the future. And ever since that occurred, the independent numbers keep growing and growing and growing, and the Republicans don't take advantage of that. So I, uh, I uh, understand the flack that's coming from the conservatives, but quite frankly, it also came from the Democrats, which means that neither side likes it, and it's the best thing that could happen for somebody that's running on a Republican ticket for election. But, you know, in a way, the Connecticut Republican Party is a miniature version of the debate that's going to go on nationally within the Republican Party. On the one hand, you have an Andy, have an Andy Rohrbach type of guy. You have a John McKinney type of guy, type of candidate who basically tracks closer to the center, probably more appealing to the unaffiliated voters um, and, and more interested in maybe compromise and, and working things out with the other side. Um, and then uh, on, on the other hand, you have far right candidates. I wouldn't say Foley was one of those, but he's a little bit further to the right anyway than those two guys. And the debate in the party is really about that. And, and it is, you know, whether or not you allow independents to vote in primaries or not, that's still going to be a debate. You know, what's a Republican? Is it Andy Rohrbach and, and John McKinney and maybe Mark Boughton? Or is it somebody who embodies a little bit more of the principles of red meat conservatism? You're going to see that happen right now, obviously, at the national level within the caucuses, you know, where Tea Party people are sort of saying, well, we got you there. Now now do our bidding. You know, uh, come on, Mitch McConnell, you owe us something now. Um, that, that's that, There's a fight going on for the Repub- the soul of the Republican Party at the Connecticut level and the national level. Oh, I think that's true. I think that's true. And I think that it's up now to the Republican Party to try to get both sides to come together. Again, if you'll recall, the last major success of the party was when Tom Meskell, a conservative Republican, and Lowell Weicker, a moderate to liberal Republican, joined hands in the same year to capture both and to capture the United States senator's job. So what the party has to do is to reach an accommodation within itself. The hell with the Tea Party. They're on their own, they can go ahead and elect anybody, and we don't need them. And quite frankly, I was pre- uh, one of the big reasons I think people looked at Dan Malloy, aside from all the negatives, they looked at him and said, look, at least he's trying to take some action to go ahead and uh, counter the tragedy at Newtown. In the meantime, the Republicans are sucking up to the NRA. Listen, I'm a gun owner. I shoot, but quite frankly, we don't need uh, multi-ground uh, 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 guns, nor do we even need handguns. You don't go game hunting with either of those. So the Republicans, instead of trying to accommodate that tragedy, not accommodate it, but to go and meet it, go off on their own tilt and, in fact, and say, well, we're sort of NRA types. So how's that, how's that going to win in Connecticut this year? It's not. So there are some conservative ideas I can go along with. Mainly, I think the moderate Republicans are liberal on social issues and very much conservatives when it comes to to spending. Um, One last question, uh, Governor Weicker. Uh, This is on a different tack, but um, very possibly your best friend in the U.S. Senate was Ted Kennedy. Uh, Ted Kennedy Jr. won uh, the state Senate race um, last night. Uh, Have you been in touch with him during this time? Have you had anything to say to the younger Ted Kennedy? I, I was in touch with Ted before he announced. I did not take part in his campaign. I think everybody's got to cut their own way. I know him well. We've talked many times in the past. I'm delighted that he made it to the state Senate. I think he's going to be a big plus. His whole life has centered around Connecticut, not Massachusetts, 
and not on the national scene. And I think he's taking the right step now to go to the Senate, and I bet she's going to be a very valuable member of that body. Well, uh, Lil Wecker, you are a valuable member of the body politic of Connecticut. Thanks so much for joining us today. Good to be with you, Mark. All right. Uh, we'll uh, be back with a, a conversation with uh, Matt Ritter, state rep. Well, talk about what happened in Hartford yesterday and, in general, how to look at the registrar system here in Connecticut. I want to restore your benefits, build up your defense, lower your deficits, too. He said, just as long as you never, ever raise my taxes, I could fall for you. Young Republicans in love There in the hotel restaurant Young Republicans in love He held her hand Said I need a constitutional amendment Well, yesterday uh, dawned as an unusual election day, especially in Hartford. Uh, one of the first people to find out about it was the Secretary of the State. Uh, that was Denise Merrill, who lives uh, near the Hartford Seminary polling place. Went there. Uh, the voting roll books, the, the the books that actually contain the names of the voters, had not arrived. Uh, she was obliged to vote by, vote by affidavit, uh, a somewhat cumbersome process, but one that she knew about anyway and made sure it happened. Uh, this problem spiraled around the city uh, and affected other polling sites uh, even more severely, so much so that voters were turned away. Uh, some people did not uh, get a chance to vote when they arrived because, in fact, there were just there was no list of names there for them uh, to for the uh, polling moderators to check. So this turned into kind of a national story. It did occasion not to make a big deal out of it. <laughs> a call to my show from President Obama yesterday, uh, and for the second gubernatorial cycle. Uh, Connecticut was in national news because of pro irregularities at polling places. Uh, you know, four years ago it was Bridgeport. This time it was Hartford. Uh, one of the other people who was affected by this was, uh, in fact, Governor Dan Malloy himself. Had to wait 35 minutes uh, to vote at the same uh, polling place while they waited for these uh, books of voters uh, to arrive. So, um, obviously, this has got people in a bit of a stir. Uh, they had to go to court. They had to extend the voting hours. That tends to uh, stir up conspiracy theorists who feel somehow or other the election is now being stolen. Um, uh, not a good situation all around. So uh, one of the people who's, uh, well, one of the people who watches over that district in the General Assembly, that whole area in the General Assembly, is Matt Ritter. Uh, he is uh, a state representative from Hartford. So Matt Ritter... Uh, let's sort of break this problem in, into a few different pieces here, but kind of over the short term, as you look at what happened yesterday, uh, obviously the court has granted uh, Denise Merrill's office uh, power to investigate, authority to investigate this, although I think she's not really an investigative authority. This is probably going to go to the State Elections Enforcement Commission. Um, is there something else that needs to be done as a result of what happened yesterday? Uh, yes, Colin, and, and thanks for having me on. Um, let me just start by saying yesterday was uh, beyond disappointing, and it, it's unacceptable. And as you noted, I, I can name neighbors and friends who were literally denied their constitutional right to vote simply because books didn't arrive for, in some cases, an hour and a half when those books should have been at the polling places at 8 o'clock the night before. So it's inexcusable, and I think there will be changes. And I can tell you I've already spoken to a lot of the Hartford delegation already today, folks at City Hall. Um, beyond the you, you mentioned investigations by the Secretary of State, State Election Enforcement, uh, City Council has the right under the city charter to do investigations. I suspect you might hear about that sometime soon. I can tell you we're going to have a meeting hopefully by the end of November between the entire delegation and the City Council to talk about state law changes that could be at play. Um, that office needs to be professionalized, and maybe that's the case uh, beyond Hartford, frankly, 
Um, it's just unacceptable in 2014 that people were denied the right to vote in this country. It's beyond embarrassing. So uh, this uh, office is an elected office, uh, and there are, there are three registrars of, uh, of voters in Hartford because the Working Families Party also has a registrar of voters. So that sort of changes the options a little bit, right? I mean, when you're dealing with an elect- elected official, the, the, that elected official has a certain implied sovereignty uh, based on the fact that you, it's an elected official. You can fire somebody who's, who's an employee, but this, this is not an employee, an elected official. So does that limit the options in terms of what you can do about all this? It's, it's a great question, and you know we have some stuff we need to figure out, and we have some, some lawyers who need to look into some, some various options. But I will say this. When the state statute was drafted some years ago, there's a lot of confusion, I think, from people, particularly in, in Hartford, frankly, on this whole issue of how do you have three registrars. You know, and, and I start off by saying that some of the registrars are my friends. I mean, Urania Pettit from the Working Families and I, I consider her uh, a very good friend. And it, it's just too bad, though, that this happened because this is, this is beyond serious, and there's going to be some repercussions for this. And what I would say is that the state law requires a Democrat and a Republican registrar no matter what. When they drafted the statute, I imagine the General Assembly never thought of the alternative of a third person, a third party winning. So in Hartford, the Democrat came in first, the working families came in second, and by law, you have to have a Republican and you have to have at least two. That gives us the three system. We're the only city in the state that has it. One of the complaints I often hear about is their salaries. Um, be very clear, that's not state law. Um, that is simply up to the discretion of the city government, the city council, what they are paid. Um, to add another layer to that, it's complicated. There was a charter revision question last year that the voters of the city of Hartford passed to create a, a one-person registrar voter, which would be appointed by the city council. Um, here's the problem. As you mentioned, Colin, these are elected officials, and so you can't just simply replace them with an appointed person in the middle of their term. Number two, you need to change state law or else that charter provision is invalid as a matter of state law because state law says you have to have a Democrat and a Republican. The ability to appoint just one would require legislation. So for someone like me last year, after that charter vote, you can imagine the conversation went like this. Hartford voters want an independent registrar. I support that. And you go and you start talking to people across the aisle and they say, hang on, come this November 2014. You mean to tell me that Hartford would have no Republican registrar at all and that the people who currently occupy those seats would be simply kicked out? And you can see where the conversation got complicated. Um, I think this moment that happened yesterday gives that conversation a much better chance of going more smoothly. But in 168 towns, you have a D and you have an R. And the idea of having just one is not the easiest of sell to General Assembly, I can tell you that. Well, I mean— there's another problem, and uh, in just a second, we actually have uh, the president of uh, the Connecticut Association of Registrars of Voters, uh, who's just called in here uh, to talk about this. But Matt Ritter, I mean, another way to think about this is why do there have to be 169 different systems? I mean, right now, I, there's an additional, in addition to not having enough ballots in Bridgeport four years ago, or not having the voter rolls at the polls in Hartford this year. There's another problem, which is just the reporting of votes, and it's very haphazard, varies uh, quite a bit from town to town. Uh, I don't know uh, if uh, it's changed in the last few hours. But earlier today, even West Hartford had not yeah. reported its results. So it's, it's all kind of very local and very specific to the town. You know, Connecticut's not that big a place. It's three million people. It's the size of a county in some places that would have it, its own uh, electoral system. Why do there have to be 169 different voting offices and voting systems and voting registrars? Why not simply standardize the whole thing? It's not a bad question, and again, I'll defer to a registrar to speak to specifics. I can certainly understand that it might be difficult to administer 
local elections, whether it was on a countywide or a statewide basis, for things like um, absentee ballot issues. I mean, imagine if you had a central warehouse, so to speak. Where do you put it? Does that mean that the people who used to go down the street to vote or had to get their applications now have to take a bus 25 minutes away? There'd be some logistics. I'm not saying it's impossible. I think the greater issue here, though, may not be so much the small town registrars or most of the town's registrars. I, I point to two things. There's a lack of authority, in my opinion, for somebody at the state level. We need to strengthen the statutes to say, when this stuff happens, you're out. Yesterday at 6 o'clock in the morning when my phone starts ringing, it was off the hook at 6 a.m. The polls had just opened because there were no books. I could not reach anybody in the Hartford Registrar Voters Office. There's no judges at work. The Secretary of State needs to have the legal authority to march into those polls and say, I'm taking over because the city of Hartford certainly didn't know what it was doing yesterday. And so I think you need to strengthen the statutes to have someone in charge, whether it's an independent person, somebody to step in and take over these situations. We currently do not have that in state law. The second thing is I think you have to beef, beef up, particularly in the cities, the training requirements, the audit requirements. Frankly, people were left to fend for themselves with no training, um, no idea what to do. They'd never heard of an affidavit to vote. I think you need to really beef that up as well. Frankly, Hartford may require some sort of special master to oversee the voting process, uh, some sort of oversight uh, from the state. I mean, I think it's that serious. And how you change it, whether it's countywide or, or bit by bit, maybe a conversation to have with the entire General Assembly and the governor's office and the Secretary of State's office. But at least from my perspective, what's going on in Hartford is simply unacceptable, and I have a few thoughts about how you could change that. Well, yeah. I mean, a special master typically would be appointed by a federal court, right? You'd have to go to a federal court and say, it's not working here. People's civil rights are being violated. We need a special master. There you master. go. That's exactly it. Federal civil rights violation. That's what it was. I mean, let's be clear. Civil rights were violated yesterday. That is not something that you should take lightly just because we're Hartford, Connecticut. I think that's an easier thing to accomplish than to write a piece of legislation, <laughs> to write a law, just, to, I mean, the writing of the law that says these are the right. circumstances under which an emergency will be declared and the Secretary of State or, or whoever yeah. will take over a polling place. That's going to be a very tough statute to write, I mean, just at the le level of letter of the law. You're right. And so, obviously, the, the, the real goal, right, is to make sure that it's not 6 a.m. on Election Day that you're trying to take over an office or change things. The goal is to prevent the errors, right? The goal is to have the preparation in place and greater oversight prior to Election Day. And again, this could take a lot of forms, and everyone has ideas. I've gotten, you know, 25 emails from people who have been looking at other states and what they do, and I suspect a lot of us will get that as the, as the General Assembly gets back into session. But the reality is, the, the system, as you know, to Colin, is, is not working. And, you know, no elections you – know, I, I heard you say talk about conspiracy theories. There's no election that was changed because two polling locations in Hartford were open for 30 extra minutes. I mean, my understanding is it was about 30 to 40 votes total. It didn't affect an outcome of an election. Had this affected an outcome of an election, which it very well could have had it been a primary or a municipal election or something with closer numbers, um, you would never stop reading about this for a year. Mm -hmm. uh, and so – we now have an opportunity. People are galvanized to address this. I don't know what that's going to look like, but professionalism, nonpartisan, oversight, 
training, all the buzzwords you need have to be in play for a conversation for the city and for statewide registrars, I think. All right. Matt Ritter, thanks for your time. Uh, General Assembly, uh, state representative from Hartford. Uh, well, let's hear a little bit more about the only, uh, in fact, General Assembly members are not the only people who talk about professionalization or reform of the registrar system. Registrars talk about it. So here's Melissa Russell. She's the president of the Connecticut Association of Registrars. She is uh, a registrar in Bethlehem, Connecticut. She's been listening to all this. So, Melissa Russell, a lot of this stuff is stuff that you've talked about before. You're not unfamiliar with um, these critiques or the push for reform. What do registrars think about all this? Well, um, registrars have quite some, some pretty specific ideas on reform. And by the way, thank you for having me on the show today. It's sort of interesting to be on the radio right after an election on about two hours of sleep, but that's yeah. okay. Um, uh, you know, we've, we've been working with the legislature and with the secretary's office for the past few years on a number of reforms. Uh, one of our biggest accomplishments this past year is, is the use of uh, electronic check-in books, you know, where you use a laptop instead of cumbersome paper. That law passed this year, but um, the secretary's office doesn't need to certify a poll book, as they're called, until next year. So hopefully next year you're going to see more electronic check-in, which accounts for fewer human errors, fewer, um, you know, transcribing issues, and faster lines. I mean, it seems like this exists a, a little bit right now. One of the puzzling stories that I heard in Hartford yesterday, uh, David Panagor, the former city manager of Hartford, showed up at his polling place. They had a, a paper book. Um, it seemed like it was an out-of-date paper book. It didn't uh, reflect where he lives now. Um, and so they took him aside, and they looked it up online, and they verified that he does, in fact, live where he says he lives. Um, you, can, you can see a backward set that really is. Um, we should be able to, this, this is the 21st century, we should be able to streamline all of this stuff. And just a word on Hartford. I want to say this is unconscionable what happened. There is no way registrars around the state excuse or condone what happened over there. So um, so what you would support, in other words, and what we should be getting pretty soon then, is a ele- fully electronic system where when I show up at the poll, they look me up online? It's not online per se. It's a standalone thing, so it's not hackable. It's not, you know, hooked into But, yes, you would have the voter list would be on the laptop at your polling place, and they would be able to look you right up, check, 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 you're all set. Um, it also, some of the, uh, there's a lot of polling books out there in other states. And in fact, 23 or four communities in Connecticut were using them unofficially yesterday to pilot them. Um, my town was being one of them. Um, there are ways to restore inactive voters. There's a way to look up where a voter should be. So if they're in the wrong polling place, you can instantly direct them. So it eliminates a lot of phone calls back and forth. It eliminates, um, You know, just all that waiting around. And, in fact, one new feature I saw this morning that one vendor is rolling out is going to be a ballot tracker. So so the the registrar knows how many ballots are left in each polling place based on who's voted that they're able to go and deliver ballots before it's a problem. Let me just uh, go go back to something you were saying before. We're living in the 21st century. So, uh, so, I mean, Amazon knows about some kind of showerhead I'm going to buy before (laughs) even I do. Uh, On the other hand, it's, you know, as of noon, the day after Election Day, some of these towns have not reported yet, and not because optical scanners burst into flames either. They just haven't reported for God knows what reasons. You know, and and, and then others have done a great job. So, Um, Well, it's not just God that knows what reasons. It's... um, there are very uh, specific reasons, especially in the cities. You had a lot of cross-endorsements on the ballot this year, and uh, according to state law, we are not allowed to just report the results as they come off the voting machine page. 
we have to do calculations on those cross endorsements. Um, let me give you an example where um, Malloy was in, endorsed by the Democrats and the working families. If you're in the polls, you can fill out a bubble for him on both lines. It only counts as one vote, but what happens is at the end of the night, the machine doesn't know what party to assign that vote to, okay? And so it becomes what they call an unknown vote. Hmm. We have to go and calculate all those unknown votes and assign them to the parties on a percentage basis. It takes a long time. And that is what the holdup is today All right. and last night. Well, that makes a, a tremendous amount of sense to me. Uh, it's a known unknown. Uh, Melissa yep. Russell, thank you so much for joining us. Thank uh, you so much, Colin. All right. I'm sure we'll have other conversations about this as we talk about reform of the system and professionalization and all those kinds of registrar issues. Uh, we'll be, uh, we won't put this issue away quite yet. Uh, anyway, we'll take a break. We'll look at the national scene with two experts after this. Colin. Colin, Colin, thanks for having me. Colin, so I'm sure you're favored. Colin, well, if I'd known you were a Packers fan, I might not have called. <laughs> Colin, you can't afford to be cynical. Colin, <laughs> Colin, don't be discouraged, Hartford. Colin, I'll be rooting for my Bears. All right, go Packers. Colin. Don't be discouraged, Hartford. Wouldn't you love this as your own personal ringtone? For a gift of $100 or more to WNPR, it can be yours. You can also choose from... Well, if I'd known you were a Packers fan, I might not have called. <laughs> or... You can't afford to be cynical. Call now. Operators are still... What is it? This seems a little tacky. I mean, the president was on one of our shows yesterday, but I don't think we should stoop to raising money off it. That's a good point. Get these awesome Obama ringtones for $19.99. That's right, $19.99 when you check out crazycayone.com. Now you say to me, Crazy Cayone, how can you afford to sell these ringtones so cheap? Well, I've got one answer for you. That's not what I was suggesting. Okay. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me. Our interns are Josh Nalea and Jackie Filson. Greg Hill tweets for us at WNPR Colin. The part of Phil Curry was played by Clay Aiken. For show pages, articles, and the Faith Middleton Show staff electoral map made of red and blue M&Ms, visit our website, wnpr.org. On tomorrow's show, what it means to talk to yourselves. And now, back to Colin. All right, so now it's time to look at the national picture, and we've got great guests for you on that. George Zornick is the Washington editor at The Nation. Margaret Carlson is a journalist and revered political columnist for Bloomberg News. She's the author of Anyone Can Grow Up, How George Bush and I Made It to the White House. Margaret Carlson, I'm going to start with you, but I'm going to ask you and George the same question to start out with. You know, there's the, the famous Pottery Barn uh, axiom, if you broke it, you own it. But there should also be kind of a game show uh, axiom, um, if you win it, uh, you own it. Uh, and maybe you didn't want that Winnebago that they were going to give you on The Price is Right after all. So uh, the people who own it right now are, are John Boehner and Mitch McConnell. They're going to be leaders of a raucous caucus in, in each chamber. And, and so it's great to have the political map work for you the way that it worked last night if you're a Republican. But now you've got to run things. What do you see as the challenges for those two guys running those caucuses? It's, it's not such a raucous caucus anymore because Karl Rove and company weeded out um, many of the candidates that got in and caused, I think, Boehner and McConnell to forget their old way, which was those two don't have a lot of ideology. They don't have a lot of uh, passion for anything. 
But they do like to make deals. They've, they've done it for years. Um, McConnell even tried to do some quiet ones with, with Biden. But they became victims of the raucous caucus and retreated. And, you know, and McConnell famously said, you know, we're going to, you know, ruin life for President Obama. And he pretty much did. I saw in McConnell's speech last night, like a, a, a bigger man, you know, I'm, I'm kind of sentimental on election night, so forgive me, and I'm a little tired, mm-hmm. but I, I heard some, some things that sounded like um, maybe the old McConnell, not that he's a great you know, McConnell, but he's a better one than we've seen since Obama was elected. I could see him. And, you know, by contrast, I was so disappointed in uh, Alison Lundergan-Grimes. What a grudging speech she gave. Um, after, by the way, doing her own self-in with that, you know, I'm not going to tell you who I voted for, and then doubling down and wasting her whole debate, saying, uh, you know, being stubbornly refusing to do so. Um, so my thing is now they have to um, – they have to look forward, and they have to become a governing party. No more shutdowns. Find some ways to get some things done on things you know, both parties care about, trade taxes, things like that. Or else they won't have a chance at the White House, and they want a chance at the White House. Well, now, uh, Margaret, I'm going to go over to George Zornick here uh, from The Nation. George, I think, is a little bit less of a misty-eyed election night sentimentalist. Uh, uh, he doesn't necessarily believe that they're going to find their governing, governing instincts and avoid shutdowns and avoid uh, obstructionism. Uh, George Zornick has uh, already got a piece up about all the things that are going to be really her- horrible uh, with the Republicans in, in charge of both chambers. So, George, as you're listening to Margaret, um, what's your reaction to her hopefulness? Well, uh, I agree with Margaret that, that Mitch McConnell's speech last night was, was very mature and, and seemed like a guy who is seeking out compromise. I think um, John Boehner has said the same thing. But their problem never really was what they themselves wanted. It was what the hardliners in both parties wanted, what the Ted Cruz in the Senate wanted, what the, what the Tea Partiers in the House wanted. Um, and I see the opportunity for a lot, a lot of conflict with the Obama White House and, and quite likely some more government shutdowns. I mean, you have a lot of things that even the mainstream Republicans are going to want to either shut down or block. Uh, there's no doubt that they want to launch a, a large offensive on the EPA carbon regulations, which Obama uh, will not budge on, I assume. There are things, uh, many things on budgeting and Obamacare and immigration reform that they're going to want to try to defund. And they're going to send Obama through the reconciliation process a lot of budgets that are going to be unpalatable to him. Um, I think what you have in Congress now is a, a hard right constituency uh, led by Ted Cruz in the Senate and and many, many folks in the House that looked at this and said, look, we shut down the government a year ago and we, and we paid virtually no political price for it. You know, I, I can't see one race where the shutdown that happened last year affected them. And I think they know that. I think they're aware of it. And I don't think they're going to be afraid to create a confrontation with the White House to get what they see as their mandate. Margaret Carlson, I wonder if you see it the same way. It seems to me there are certain things that you can do and that you can get away with and nobody complains too much. If you want to be obstructive about executive appointments, 
and you control the Senate, you could probably get away with that. People don't pay too much attention to it. Probably even if you want to be obstructive about federal court appointments, as long as it's not a Supreme uh, Court appointment, which turns into a much bigger national drama, as President Obama himself said to Jeffrey Tubin recently, as long as it's not that, yeah, you could probably get away with that kind of stuff. The, the shutting down the government thing, even though George is right, it's hard to look at anybody who paid an electoral price for that. There is a public relations price. The markets go nuts. The, the country goes nuts. I wonder if it's really true that shutting down the government is something that they can afford to do during the next two years. Well, you and George are kind of snapping me out of my reverie, <laughs> reminding me that there was no price to pay, even though it was only a year ago that they shut down the government and it did all the things that, that you just enumerated. Democrats didn't make it an issue. You know, what if Senator Mark Udall had made it an issue? You know, maybe would have won. You know, it was such an empty um, campaign where Democrats just didn't nail Republicans. Republicans are getting back in because Democrats were perceived to be in power and weren't getting anything done. Not that they got, you know, not that they deserve that, but they just happen not to be perceived to be in power. Now they're going to be perceived to be in power and, in fact, are in power. Um, if they do that thing, you know, as you described it, and we're looking at 2016, how how do they get away with it? I, I mean, it's, it's, I know you can you can attach these things to bills that have to go, and so therefore you can threaten and whatever, but... Uh, will they will they risk doing it even though they got away with it will they risk doing it this close going into a national election you know george zornick i think margaret raises an interesting question which is you know if you act like babies if you act act like petulant children you may be able to win your Senate race. You may be able to win your House race. There are questions about whether the White House uh, maybe has a different kind of electoral status and whether the country perceives that kind of differently. Uh, and, and you look at the signals that are being sent right now by a candidate, a potential candidate like Jeb Bush, like, which are very much signals of statesmanship, conciliation, collegiality, political uh, uh, ecumenism. Um, and you think maybe he's reading the mood of the country a little bit better than anybody from the Tea Party who's saying to Mitch McConnell and John Boehner right now, OK, we got you these big majorities. Let's see what you can do for us. I mean, maybe Margaret's right in the sense that you know, there is a price that you pay somewhere down the line if you throw tantrums all the time. Yeah, I think the brain trust certainly believes that at the top, at the leadership of, of the Republican Party, though they believed it last time, too, and, and weren't able to control their, their right flanks. Um, I, I think what it's going to come down to is very specific issues, and, and I'll give you one. If, if there's one thing that the Republican Party in Congress hates more than Obamacare, it is the EPA regulations on carbon. They actually, for, for all the talk about all the repeal Obamacare attempts, the House passed more bills targeting, the Republican House passed more bills targeting the EPA than they did Obamacare repeal things. So what I, what I think is likely to happen in, in one scenario that I can imagine forcing a shutdown, even a brief one, is that with Jim Inhofe, who's a, a notorious climate denier chairing the Senate Environment Committee, and with the House falling in lockstep, it's certainly possible that Congress will send Obama a bill that says, look, we're not funding any. We're not giving you any money for the EPA regulations on carbon. Your your signature achievement in your second term, you're not going to get it. They might even send them one that says we're not going to fund the EPA. Period until you repeal these 
regulations that are going forward. And then it's going to get to a situation where Obama has to either give in on that, which I, do, I don't see him doing, but it's possible, or we'll have to essentially accede to a government shutdown because the appropriations won't be there. Um, so on the large picture, yeah, that you know the, the people in charge, the Jeb Bush, and certainly the folks at the RNC, and, and probably Boehner and McConnell themselves don't want this situation. But I think when the rubber hits the road on, on the things like EPA or immigration or any number of things, it's going to be really difficult to find a path where everyone, the Republican Congress and Obama, can agree and, and keep the government operating. So, um, Margaret Carlson, uh, as we wind up here, it is sort of the case that both sides have to thread the needle a little bit and and sort of make discernments. In other words, it won't make sense for President Obama to veto everything that comes out of this Congress if it bothers him at all. And by the same token, it won't. uh, Congress is going to have to pick its spots. You wonder even whether Obamacare is one of those spots. As you look at the polling across the nation, it's, you know, at most 45 percent of the nation is unhappy with Obamacare. So you wonder whether that's a winner for them, that they're going to have to pick and choose what they do. McConnell was very vague towards the end about exactly what he was going to repeal on Obamacare. He's certainly not going to uh, 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 repeal the things that people care about. I think he'll do some show things, like a show trial on Obamacare, but it's it's not, they're not going to do that. It's just you know, it, 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 they just have to do something, but they're not going to do something that completely undermines it because it's now not in their interest to do so. Uh, I mean, I'm slipping back a little bit into this reverie just for a moment, which is we're assuming the Tea Party and the right flank remain as as powerful as they were. I don't think they do. Um, and the second thing is, if you know the the pendulum is going to swing. Republicans are now going to be in the crosshairs, you know, because they're in power. And I think they're constrained more than we think. I actually think Ted Cruz is going to be, uh, you know, Ted Cruz is going to lose his, 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 you know, bully pulpit. He's not going to be as powerful because, first of all, Paul Rand is lapping him. I mean, Rand Paul, excuse me, is, is doing better uh, creating a national uh persona for himself. I think that's and right. Um, Margaret, we actually are going to have to wrap up here. We're just kind of out of time. Uh, but I want you to come oh, back. Okay. I want you to come back very soon and finish your thoughts. We should say Margaret's at a train. I will, I will come back when I've, I've slept and I've been, you know, brought back to real life. Right, exactly. And you're at a train station right now, which is why you can hear Margaret shoveling coal when George Zornick is talking. Uh, so uh, we'll have both of them back with better phone connections and more time to talk. Thanks to everybody who worked on today's show. We'll be back tomorrow. I'm President Obama. Vote for Chion Wolf for. Excuse me, Mr. President, it's Kion. Chion. Kion. 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 On. Forget it. Sorry.